Welcome to Taking Measure, a podcast series exploring Roderick Haig-Brown's 1950 classic work, Measure of the Year, Reflections on Home, Family, and a Life Fully Lived. I'm your host, Dan McLennan, and I'm sitting at the desk in the study at Above Tide, also known as Haig-Brown House. From here, I can look out the window across the grounds at the Campbell River flowing past, just as Haig Brown did when he wrote more than 20 books and numerous articles and essays, lectures, and more. He was a remarkable man on many levels, an early, eloquent naturalist and conservationist, a farmer, a magistrate, a university chancellor, and an award-winning author. In the world of fly fishing, he occupies the Pantheon. In Measure of the Year, Haig Brown presents a chapter for each month in the lives of the farm, his family, the community, and the nature that surrounds them. So we're going to bring you Haig Brown in 12 parts, through his book, through the eyes and voices of his four children and others who knew him well. We'll take a measure of the man through his Measure of the Year. Valerie Haig-Brown is the firstborn of Anne and Roderick Haig-Brown. Over the years, she's been a writer, editor, conservationist, and an activist. She's written for or copy-edited publications as diverse as the UBC, the student-run newspaper, and Maclean's magazine. She's compiled and published four collections of articles and other works by her father, and she's the author of Deep Currents, the definitive work about Anne and Roderick Haig-Brown's love for each other. She spent some 40 years on the border of Alberta's magnificent Waterton Lakes National Park, where she loves to hike in the mountains and where she served several years as a trail guide. She has two daughters, two grandsons, and four great-grandchildren, and she joins me from her home on the border of Waterton Park. Valerie, welcome to Taking Measure. Thank you for having me here. (laughs) It is a pleasure to have you here, and I'm hoping you can read us something from Measure of the Year that speaks to you. Well, the whole of Measure of the Year speaks to me, actually. I mean, it's about the family. It's different from all the other books. It's got more than just the family, but anyway. What I've chosen to read is on making a library, since books are a big part of what I do. Maybe not so much now, but have been. No, I've done a couple of books here, too. I did help with a collection of pieces about Waterton Lakes National Park. Anyway, on making a library in Measure of the Year starts out with... Anne and I have always been buyers and hoarders of books. I cannot remember the time when I did not feel invitation from any second-hand bookstore, and I have scarcely ever been able to part with a book without regret. In time, this begins to mount up. After we were married, we put our books together and found that we had several shelves of them in spite of the wastage of travel and movement. When, after two years, we moved into our present house, The books were by far the heaviest and bulkiest item of our movement. We lined a small room with shelves from floor to ceiling, spread the books out, and felt we had space for growth. Within three or four years, we were finding ingenious ways of crowding in new shelves. Within ten years, the books were crowding us out of the room. Immediately after the war, we built on a new and much larger room, lined it with shelves from floor to ceiling, and again felt we had room for growth. We still have a little but we are already discussing the place and design of future shelves. This amounts, I suppose, to a library. 
Now, I remember that little room, which part of the reason the new library got built on, the new room for the library, was because my baby sister was coming along, and we had didn't have another bedroom upstairs. So that room got built on, the books went in, and the study became the study. The little room was called the study, too, but it became the study. There's something quite magical about the whole thing, especially when you think about the family gathered there at dinner, just us. I mean, sometimes there could be friends, too, but just us was pretty good. That baby sister would fall asleep under that big table in the middle of the room because her bedroom, as it was now, was much too far from the rest of the family. And uh, we often had our dinner in there. And there was almost always a fire in the fireplace. It didn't make the room terribly warm, but what the heck? Maybe the books made it warmer just by their bindings and colors and the way they look on the shelves. And certainly just all of us in there together was amazing. They were amazing dates. So you had dinner in the library sometimes, too. Although nowadays, that's ironic, because nowadays... Oh, heck, it's a it's a class one historic site. You have to wear these white cotton gloves and... <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. It was our place. <laughs> we spread ourselves out. I don't think we spilled things too often. I think we often served the plates in the kitchen and carried them in. Ah. I don't really remember. So I'm in that very place right now. I am sitting at your father's desk. I am looking out across the lawn at the river, and I have all sorts of questions that come to mind because I find this a magical place, and I didn't grow up here. <laughs> so <laughs> you read on making a library, but I notice we don't call this a library. We call it a study. It's the study. Why isn't it the library? Well, it's too pretentious for one thing. And also the library could be a generic term for the books themselves, but not necessarily the room they're in. Ah. You know, the study, that was where he did his writing, and that's what the little room had been, so... I don't know, just travel. One of the things that makes this feel magical to me is, because it was an addition to the house, mm -hmm. it's built at more at ground level than the rest of the house, and so when you walk through the dining room and down the little hallway and you open this door for the first time, you are struck by the fact that everything is way down there below you. You're on a little landing that looks out over the library. And I remember that for the very first time. It made the place feel just that much more magical. I'm sure it, you're, you were used to running up and down these stairs. Yeah, but there's something pretty special about that room anyway. Always was. And you went in carefully in, in case our father was terribly absorbed in what he was doing. But mostly he would stop for almost anything. He has a piece he writes about, I think it's in on children, about the children coming and going and all the chaos and confusion one afternoon when he's theoretically getting on with it. But of course, that would have been a Saturday because there was a lot of pretty quiet days during the week. And uh, Celie says she remembers amusing herself endlessly because she was a bit younger than the rest of us, and we were all gone off to school. He kind of uses that section, if I remember correctly, almost as a way to introduce the children as they come through the study interrupting him while he's trying to do his writing. I don't think he expected to get a whole lot done on a Saturday when we were all home from school. Even when I was little, he took his time over his breakfast, and then he settled down after breakfast and wrote until something else happened. And, of course, he was also the local magistrate, later judge. And uh, so he would have to hold court, not in the house, you know. And 
Then he also writes in the summer about all the people who came and went and wanted their books autographed and interrupted them. I don't think he got ever got anything done in August, especially when it was Thai fishing season. Your sister Celia was saying uh, that your mother had to be a bit of a gatekeeper at times when he needed to get something written. Sometimes, sometimes. Once in a while, there would be a time when you do not go in the study. And I suspect, if I think back, that that was often when page proofs came for a book and they had to be read and sent back quickly to New York. And the New York publisher was the major publisher. I'm amazed at your father's ability. One of the hallmarks of his reflections, and this whole book is about reflections, of course. That's even in the title, Reflections on Home, Family, and a Life Fully Lived. His ability to, at all times, seem to be able to address both sides of a debate to weigh the pros and cons. Mm. And you reminded me of that when I asked you about library and you said it's rather pretentious. <laughs> because I've got this quote right, that comes right from that same section you were reading, where he says, library has always seemed to me a rather pretentious word for a collection oh, yeah. of, of two or 3,000 books. It has an official and purposeful sound out of keeping with the casual acquisition of books that one likes and wants to have in hand. And then... He looks to the other side and says, yet there is no escaping the word. Its derivation is impeccable. Its meaning is clear. So he argues both sides there. But my favorite mm -hmm. quote from this chapter is, of course, it's an organic explanation. If you read books and like books well enough to give them space in your house, a library begins to happen to you. Mm -hmm. I always thought that was so well put as though it's out of your hands and it's kind of growing on its own. Yep, it just does books. I mean, you can see mine behind me. I don't have nearly anything like 4,000 books or whatever it is that's in that house now. But I, in fact, I almost try not to acquire books because what am I going to do with them? <laughs> your father was the writer. Your mother was the librarian. And it sounds uh, there are places in there where the two of them don't necessarily agree on on how the books should be organized. But he, he mentions uh, in a passage where... Your mother has a different idea. I can read you that right now. Anne had the inspired idea years ago that English literature should be arranged by the birth dates of its authors. And he at first doesn't think that's a workable solution, but he comes around to it. Well, I don't know. I, I wasn't in on the discussion. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, any, any couple does that. Bounce off each other. Think about what about this? What about that? I also understand he wrote by hand, and then yeah. essentially the pages went upstairs to your mom, and she typed them out. Yep, yep. And then from there, they would go off to... The typescript? Through many years, the basic publisher was William Morrow in New York. In the very early years, it was Collins from England and then in Toronto. In those days, of course... The back and forth between the writer and the editor or the publisher could have been a very time-consuming process. It was by mail. Exactly. We didn't have these crazy computers. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas nowadays, you could go back and forth all day long. Oh, but the back and forth thing that you're thinking about, when I'm talking about when everything had to just kind of stop and be quiet and don't go in the study, was when he was reading page proofs. So it all been talked about, dealt with, gone over and was set in type, and he was looking at what was set in type. There weren't major changes at that point. They'd already been done. 
That's interesting because I'm I'm kind of thinking of just the writing at hand, but obviously that what comes back, there's quite a process before you get to the final product. Yes, there is. <laughs> As you well know, was there a lot of pre-editing done? As I understand it, and just typed, but she wasn't editing as she was going. No, there wasn't a whole lot of that done. He did it himself, because what he did, he had these fairly large notebooks, bigger than a school exercise book, and he wrote on the right-hand page, but the left-hand page was left blank, and then if he needed room or he changed his mind about something, he could use the left-hand page to write a new paragraph or, you know, crossing out what he didn't want. He did a certain amount of self-editing as he went, and... I used to think this when you went in the study, if he was leaning back in his chair and had his hand, chin on his hands, that was the time not to interrupt because he was thinking through the next thing he was going to write down. If he was writing, he almost probably had it already figured out in his head what he wanted to put down. But he thought it through. He didn't, I mean, I think every writer probably does that. You don't, you can't just type it, write it. He didn't type, of course, but you have to uh, be able to think it through. Were there times, I know you you obviously don't want to interrupt him when he's leaning back in the chair and thinking about something. Well, that's what I'm saying. That's practically the time you don't. Were there, were there times that you were sort of just in the study and you could just sit there and watch if you were quiet or was that? Oh, yeah, we could, we could do that. Yeah. I remember when I was really little and we were in the little study, because after all, this one you're in now didn't come till I was uh, 11 or 12. And I remember... Well, it must have been the Western Angler. There was a little coffee table, and they put the book down on the table, and they told me how special it was. This is the Derriodale limited edition of the Western Angler. Fine press. I mean, just Derriodale alone, let alone is, is people collect them, What, no matter what's in them. Um, and I remember sitting there and being allowed to wash my hands, be very careful, and I could turn the pages. And there's some photographs in there where I can see my mother and father even, I just was given the impression it was such a privilege to be holding or handling this book. I also remember going to Union Bay down the island, and I think it might have been a borrowed car with my father to pick up the first copies of that. There are only 950 copies of the first edition. It was printed later in a somewhat shortened single volume edition, like an ordinary book. But this was really special. That was that was a Western Angler? Yep. Do you remember measure of the year showing up, like that box of books kind of thing? I I don't especially, but I mean, I was at school, so the mail came to the mailbox. You didn't have to go to the post office. came to the mailbox, and the mailman would stuff it in the box. What a concept. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, I don't remember being there as the box was being opened. I just remember this special trip to Union Bay, and I'm not sure it wasn't in somebody else's car, even a borrowed car. I don't know why, but it was just a really big deal. And sort of like this big with my chin on the counter while they opened them up and said, what have we got here, Mr. Haybrow? <laughs> or whatever they said. Um, I think it's probably an understatement to say that growing up with parents who were writing and librarianing, I don't know if that's a verb or not, <laughs> but obviously you through osmosis, if nothing else, develop this love of the written word. Yeah, born with it, I think. <laughs> it was in our genes, I'm not sure. There weren't a million children's books in those days, so the ones, you know, now they're 
thousands of brightly colored books. I'm trying to remember what the first books were that we had. But we must have gone over and over them. Wore them out, I guess. <laughs> oh, I know. There's a great story about one of them. Because he won an award at a banquet in Victoria for one of the children's books. I can't remember which one it was. Anyway, they handed him probably a plaque or something in an envelope. And he shoved the envelope in his pocket. And he didn't open it until he got back home to Campbell River. And as I remember, I mean, I know it was a check. I think it was for $400. And he used it to buy the chair that is at his desk now. But he was astonished at how much it was and the fact that three, you know, I don't know what he, you know, he just remembers being embarrassed that he didn't look at it at the time because he, he maybe hadn't praised it enough and thanked them enough. But I'm sure he wrote a lovely letter and thanked them. And I have to thank them because I am sitting in that chair as we speak. So that now has extra magic <laughs> for me too, as if this room already didn't. Now, you have a better knowledge of his writing, I think it's safe to say, than anybody. You grew up with him writing. You've lived with his writing. You're the executor of his writing. You've edited his posthumous works of his. Depends what you mean by editing. Because what I did was I went through all the articles and things, most of which have been published one time or another in magazines. There are a few that hadn't. The papers were by that time at UBC in uh, Special Collections, the archive there. And I assembled three volumes of articles and stories, very few of which had not been published before. And this was at the request of Jack McClellan, of McClellan and Stewart, which was big-time stuff in its day. Well, I mean, I guess they still are, but book publishers just... It's just not the same as it used to be. True, but McClellan and Stewart is as big as you could get in those days, I would think. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And Jack McClellan took me to lunch at the Park Plaza and said, I would like you to do this. And I said, I didn't say sir, I didn't have to call him that, but I was still pretty impressed. Um, and I said, so have you checked me out in the business? Because I didn't want him to be asking me to do it just because I was my father's daughter, you know, in the lovely dress with the quill pen sitting at the... No. And he said, yes, I have. So he knew that I knew what I was... I would know what I was doing. You touched on earlier that measure of the year stands out amongst his writings because it's about family and more. Could you elaborate on that? What is it that makes measure of the year stand out? What makes it so special in an already special collection of works? Well, it's special to us in the family because it's so much about family. And also his philosophy on various things. It's all in there. I mean, all the other books basically are fish of one kind or another. Not that I, you know, I mean, it's lovely stuff to read. I have a friend who uh, comes here to do the vegetable gardening and um, she likes it. I don't, so it's wonderful that she does it. Um, and she has a roommate who's from Chile and the fisherman's winter is my father going fishing in Chile. I lent her my copy, which has an inscription in it. And I thought, no, this is too nice. And I probably had a glass of wine. And she took it to him, and he really was very taken with it. But she knew how special that physical copy of the book was, so she went and got another copy and brought it back to me in a brand new plastic bag, all carefully taken care of. <laughs> so that was quite lovely. And some of his public was very disappointed, because that book, Fisherman's Winter, was not about winter steelhead. 
which of course is the epitome of fly fishing. Were there some reactions in that vein to measure of the year? Because it's not about really about fishing either. I'm not aware of any, but it's possible there were, but it wasn't a big deal. I don't think so. There were already quite a few and there were more to come. So those fly fishing people didn't have to be too disappointed. (laughs) I'm told originally it was not called. The working title was not measure of the year. No, it was called No Want of Wonder. And that comes from... I'll read it to you. The world will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. And that was the working title for Measure of the Year, No Want of Wonder. And it's a quote from a poem by G.K. Chesterton. And how did that title not survive as the title of the book? Publishers make the end de- and, and decision because they know what's going to get marketed. So you, you can, you know, obviously they're open to suggestions, but in the end they decide. You mentioned the publishers in New York. Did your father have like a good working relationship with the publishers? He did through the agent he had, Harold Ober and Company, who were the agents still in my day for a long time. They only stopped about maybe four years or four or five years ago. They just kept collecting the royalties and sending them on. That's essentially all was being done at that point, because I wasn't churning out new things. Now, in the book, he refers to the Campbell River as the Elk River. Well, he just chose to. In Campbell River, the community, he refers to as Elkhorn, I believe it is. Do you have any insight as to how that came to be? Why he didn't just, you know, use them by their regular names? I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. I don't know. I absolutely don't know. But I wonder if it's possible he didn't want to be snowed under by even more people stomping up to his door. He used to say, you know what? We had a canoe, a great big Peterborough canoe. He said, there were no houses across the river at that point. He said, I could just build a little cabin over there. And then when there were too many people, I could just get in the canoe and go across the river. (laughs) Obviously, it was... Above tide, the the Hague Brown House was a busy place, as you've as you've alluded, and as Celia told us, there's there's a, a parade of people coming to the door on some days in the summer, especially. Mother used to try to say to the people in the hotels, "If you want to send people, please reduce send them after five o'clock." So there would be sort of a period when any the keen people, where do the Hague Browns live? Well, after five o'clock they live, <laughs> but it didn't work. <laughs> And these are also people related to his uh, his work as a magistrate, or his work as a marriage counselor, or so many different things he did. He was well recognized in the community as a person you would go to. Yeah, yeah, he was. Various combinations. If you remember, one Christmas morning, actually, we were on the way out to church or something, and there was a woman saying, "Look at the bruises he put on me." <laughs> Come to talk to the magistrate. On Christmas morning. Well, you know, that's a bad time, isn't it? That's Yeah, that timing could be better. Do you think while he was writing it and when he had finished product there in front of him that he knew, that he recognized how special this was in relation to the others, that this was a departure in some ways? I have no idea on that. I mean, yes, it was a departure. He probably had to even persuade the publishers a little. There's probably some correspondence at UBC in the archives, although I haven't plowed through that. Now, uh, Celia told us, and I think you've mentioned it as well, uh, come dinner time, you all tended to show up at the table with some reading material. 
Oh, yeah. My mother used to tell a story about when they left me with friends. I think it was probably when Mary was being born when I was, say, so I would have been two. And I stayed with friends because she went to Seattle to have the babies because her mother was a maternity nurse and also meant we had U.S. citizenship, which I could do without now. Um, and, uh, anyway, the, the people I was staying with said it's supper time or dinner time or whatever they said, and I went and got a book. <laughs> they first, <laughs> I wasn't even very big, but that's what you did when it was time to serve dinner. Now, I'm sure people thought that we all sat there with our books in front of us, munching away on our food and, you know, not paying slightest attention. We talked about what we were reading. We read bits to each other. It, the conversation never stopped. We just had our books propped in front of us. This was not the analog equivalent of the whole family staring into their cell phones. No, absolutely not. <laughs> well, that's good to know. <laughs> no. <laughs> but you still brought reading material with you to the table. And then, of course, you'd also, you might read a little bit and you'd say, oh, listen to this. You know, it, there were six of us talking our heads off. A measure of the year highlights in so many different ways probably in every chapter, that your father and your mother were very much a team. Mm -hmm. And that the farm, the writing, the family, everything was not possible for one without the other. I would say that, yes. Do you think that Anne is somewhat neglected in the mists of time here uh, with all the attention that is based on the writings of your father? Well, the writing and the books, that's kind of got an international thing, but my mother had a huge effect on the town of Campbell River. Alan tells a story, one, well, scoop him, but Alan tells a story about going into a bar where they wanted to see your ID, and the, the bouncer, great big bouncers looking at his ID and said, oh yeah, your mother was my librarian at school. So in BC, you run into people that knew her all the time. What else did you do here? Oh, let's come back to the study. I keep wanting to call it the library, but it's the study. You had meals here at times. Obviously, it was one of the places that, that your father did so much of his writing. Was it a place for everyone, one at a time, to get away? A quiet spot? or No, no, it was his quiet spot, and we just bounced in on him. When you came home from school, when you wanted something really important, bothered him whenever you wanted. Unless there was the odd time when you were not allowed, but that was so rare. But no, if we wanted a quiet space, we'd go somewhere else. That was his space. You carried on with your love of books after you left Above Tide. And like you say, it felt like it was part of your DNA. Mm. Has there ever been a time where you've been in the middle of some editing or writing or something that you kind of find yourself back here in this study? Mm, that's a good question. I don't know. I do remember when I was at first year university, being the oldest, I went off to university, and that's very exciting, but I got homesick quite a lot. And I used to read Measure of the Year when I was homesick. It's like a letter from home. Oh, that's magical. It is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I still read it with enormous pleasure. It's very hard not to want to read the whole book to you right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's very hard once you get into it to stop. Yeah. Because the observations have such a flow to them. In fact, he does a, an extensive dissertation on the concept of flow as well <laughs> in, one, yeah, yeah. in one place there. It's, it's quite uh, amazing how every little piece 
feels as though he's introducing it to you for the first time, but he's, he's obviously thought an awful lot about mm-hmm. an awful lot of things while staring out this window and watching the river go by. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, Celia told us or tried to tell us what it's like to be the youngest of the brood. Yeah, well, that's her thing. Yeah. What was it like being the oldest? Was that difficult, being firstborn? Not particularly, no, because I had two loving parents. No, I don't remember. I mean, it had a certain privilege to it, I suppose. Each child has a different kind of privilege, depending on their place in the scheme of things. When you think back to the property here, which is, I guess, smaller now than it used to be, originally above tide was about 20 acres, I believe? Yeah, yeah. Is there, outside of the study, is there a favorite spot that comes back to mind? Oh, down by the river. Anywhere along down by the river. That's what say. Where's so-and-so? Oh, they're down by the river. Not that you could go to the river by yourself. It had to be at least two of you down by the river. In case somebody fell in and had to be rescued. Or somebody had to run and scream. <laughs> None of us ever did. I wondered when I was reading about him fishing and, and you following him down there and fishing with him, uh, the the children in different spots. And as far as rivers go, Campbell River is, is not as wide as the Mississippi by any stretch, but it's still a but it's still a good flowing body of water and at certain times of the year it's rocking pretty good. I had never really heard before, but obviously it makes sense that you would have some form of rules, safety protocol. Yep around this big body of water that is right, well, it's it's in your yard. Yeah. Well, that was the main one. And, and uh, we also got taught to or learned to or something to swim. And we learned quite a bit about how current flows. Don't fight the current. If you fall in, just keep swimming towards the shore until you get there. You can always walk back up. But we spent a whole lot of time in the river. The only other thing was when I was younger, before the dam was built after the war, the river in the summer was much lower than it is now. Mm-hmm. So what you're looking at is a bigger river than when we mostly mucked about it in the summer. That's right. It would have been much, much lower and maybe not necessarily so threatening than, than say, it would be in full flow in the spring. We talked to Celia about how she's exchanged the Campbell for the Humber River, but the importance and the impact of... Growing up on a river where you have this idyllic lawn and trees, and but you have this constant flow, this big movement mm-hmm. that is always there. How does it impact growing up? I think it's extremely soothing, actually. I mean, maybe we were more peaceful than we would otherwise have been because of that flow of the river. And also, once Daddy came home from the army, we slept outside in the summertime. Upstairs in the house was quite warm, anyway. And uh, even before that, we used to sleep out on the porch. Because upstairs gets too hot. And then he got us a tent, but we didn't stay in the tent very much. We dragged our sleeping bags wherever we wanted to. Here, there, and everywhere. And there's, I seem to remember one time when we were asked if we would please sleep under the plum trees so the bears wouldn't get the, <laughs> get the plums. <laughs> because they could clean off a plum tree in one night. Seems like a rather hazardous form of bear control, but... Well, 
to tell you the truth, I don't remember us worrying very much about bears. There would be bears on the lawn in the fall when they were coming up and down the river to get the salmon. And we would be careful enough to, you know, look at them, mostly watch them out the window. But I, mean, I don't know. We just weren't particularly scared about bears. You grew up around a lot of animals. The horses, the cows, yeah. the... Yeah, Seely had a horse. We didn't have horses. I wanted a horse, but I didn't get one. Seely did. <laughs> you were the track and field athlete. Yeah, I was pretty good at it. Then I went to university, and I could have gone on, but then I got mono, and so, you know, the flow got stopped, and so I didn't keep going. But it was great when I did, and I think it's also part of the reason that I managed to stay pretty healthy into my old age. I still hike at 85 up and down the mountains. Some of them I look at and I think, oh, I don't think I want to do that anymore. But <laughs> I, I can. So I've been to Waterton National Park. It was many years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. But it is a glorious place. What drew you there and kept you there? <laughs> well, cherchez <laughs> l'homme, they say. <laughs> I... um. Andy Russell had, was writing an introduction to a book which my father had done for Wildlife Association or something like that. It was connected with one of those outfits. Andy Russell, a noted conservationist himself. Yes, himself, yeah. And uh, Scott McIntyre was publishing it, and Andy was to write an introduction, and the introduction wasn't coming and wasn't coming. And I said, well, I can go and talk to him if you want. So, you know, go along, go along. This is January or something. And then the 1st of July, Scott says, okay, can you go to Waterton this weekend? I still don't have the introduction and I need it. So off I went to Waterton and it just so happened that his son, John, who had been the caribou biologist for Yukon Territory, had come home that weekend. So the rest is history. John and I got together. We built this house I'm sitting in and uh, I've been here ever since. I love it. More than 40 years? Yeah, half my life, basically. Yeah. You were, for some time, a trail guide in the park as well. Yeah, not a whole lot. It was kind of, I did it when partly as a favor, and also we used to have something called the Flower Festival, and they had to have a licensed guide with every trip. So I spent most of the time going, oh my God, please don't have a heart attack. <laughs> I don't want to have to deal with it. <laughs> Now, you are the, and, and were, the literary executor of your father's works. Yeah, but what that means is that I keep track of the copyrights. And there were things to be published, but that doesn't have to do with being the literary executor. You could get somebody else to do that. doesn't mean you have to do it yourself. I happen to be an editor and capable of doing it. And as I said, Jack McClellan asked me to do it, so I did. Was that difficult? It sounds to me like an honor as well as uh, somewhat of a task. An honor, definitely. I'd make copies of what's at UBC and then spread them all out, shuffle them around until it seemed to make sense. Because there was a certain theme to each one of them, Woods and River Tales. And uh, each one was a collection of mostly things that had been published before. Mm. He was, you know, he made a living being a writer. He had to sell the stuff. <laughs> he didn't write for fun. So when it came time to get his papers, his works, to the UBC, University of British Columbia Special Collections, there must have been a, quite a bit of inventory-type work to be done there, was there? No, how that happened was there were a group of people 
at UBC who every year after convocation would go on a fishing trip together, and they invited him to go along with them. So they started way back then, and this is in the 50s, even maybe a little sooner, asking him to give them whatever, to send them along down to special collections. So lots of stuff was already there. It wasn't piling up in the house and waiting until he died. It was an ongoing process. And here I was thinking that it happened all at once, yeah. So it was over time. And because they were down there, they were all beautifully organized. Not that Mother didn't organize his files and things very, very well. She was very good at filing. But they were all there, and they had a finding aid and all those things that archives have. So it wasn't too hard. I mean, I had to think about what I was doing. And, and then I'm assuming that you would have had a, maybe an even, a larger job of doing the inventory when it came to transferring the house and the property to the province of British Columbia. We were each allowed to take 50 books, and I can't remember exactly what the de- how the details went, but I mean, it was quite a long time ago. But no, we more or less turned it over to them as is, and we each took kind of a special piece of furniture and little treasures that we'd left at home. You know, I look around this house and I think, oh my God, what a bunch of junk. Who's going to have to cope with all this? <laughs> well, what a lot of people don't realize is that an awful lot of the furniture in this house was built by your father. Yes, it was. That The table in the study where you are now, and what we call the step tables. In theory, they could be for stepping up to the books, but in fact, there was actually a ladder that slid along that you could go to get to the top shelves. It's there somewhere. So hanging on the end of one of the bookshelves, I think. Let's turn to more recent years. Well, I guess it's a few years now. Uh, Campbell River has become well known for its Words on the Water Writers Festival. And a big part related to that, of course, is the Writer in Residence program, where writers, I can't think of how many now it's been, but it's quite a few. They come here to Campbell River. They do some of their own writing. They obviously help other people with theirs. They take part in the Writers' Festival. And their base of operations, they live at Hague Brown House. Well, that started way back. The Canada Council, it was Canada Council money in the beginning, and they had certain criteria, including that the writer was expected to devote a certain amount of time to the community, not just hole up for six months and indulge themselves. <laughs> and, um, and so it just went on from there. I was on the committee way back in the beginning, and then things have changed, and the Canada Council actually isn't a good fit anymore, and uh, the money is scrounged up from somewhere, and it's wonderful. I think it's absolutely wonderful. It goes on. COVID kept it from happening last winter, but then they had short-term residencies for local people. They didn't stay in the house. They, they just came for the day. It must be quite something to see this process, this haven, this cultural creative center for writers Mm -hmm. to be also the house you grew up in and that it continues to live on in such a, I guess I would say, such an appropriate use for the place. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's wonderful. Let me back us up then for a minute. We were talking 
the property, the house, uh, how it continues to live on as a creative bastion, you could say, for writers and others. And you were mentioning it's no longer necessarily such a great fit for the Canada Council, but money continues to be found. Well, the museum scrapes up the money, I guess, somewhere, somehow. I don't, I'm not on the committee anymore, so I don't know all the details, but we are endlessly grateful to the way that the way the museum takes care of the house and supervises the use of the house and hires the gardener. Marcy Pryor stayed on forever and ever. It's just wonderful. And the museum does it in such a beautiful way. Your sister Celia spoke about how thrilled she was to know that Eden Robinson was at this desk working with her trickster and that to know that those things are happening here. One of the fun things for Eden Robinson was that she likes to take all her chapters and spread them all out. And not in that room, but in the other room is the table my father made that fits into the bay window. And she was able to spread everything out on that table. I saw a picture of it. It looked great. And then she can stand back and work and move things around. You must love that that sort of work is taking place mm-hmm. here at yep. Above Tide. Let me go on to a practical side here now. I was reading in your work, Deep Currents, mm-hmm. that I sometimes get a little overly romantic and think, oh, Above Tide, what a wonderful title that is for a property. It has a magical ring to it. And then I come across what it actually means <laughs> or how the name actually evolved. Tell us about Above Tide, because so many of us, I think, just think of this as Haig Brown House. Mm. But I think maybe they, your parents, and maybe you thought more of, you didn't think of it as Haig Brown House, you thought of it as Above Tide. I thought of it as home. (laughs) The thing about the Above Tide is, when my mother and father first came there, they rented the house next door, which belonged to a brother of the people who owned this house. And they were there for two years, I think it was. And both houses had water towers and a a raft in the river that you winched out into the current, which then turned a wheel and pumped the water up into the tower, and then it fed the house with gravity. And it's above tide because there was no sense of any tide on the raft for that house, the one you're in, one we're talking about. One house down the river that they lived in when they were first married, there was a little touch of tide showed on the raft there. So that's where the name came from. So a little touch of tide means you're getting just a hint of salt in your drinking water. Mm, I don't know. I think I think it meant the raft moved up and down a little bit by itself. After uh, all, the flow of the river coming down must keep the salt pretty far out. Ah, uh, now that makes sense. So above tide was actually a good place to to run your your water intake. I guess yeah. <laughs> it's it's the bottom line there. Mm-hmm. You mentioned spending so much time on the river. Celia talked about uh, being in the barn with uh, with her horses. Yeah. Our horse. Or were there other favorite places on this property that, that you liked mm. to be at? Along the river. Almost anywhere along the river. Out on the dam in the summer when we were all swimming and enjoying the river. Celia, I think, probably went to the barn more than I did. Because she had a horse, as I've said before. (laughs) 
Um, horses became a pretty big part of her life. She'll tell you that. Well, she's probably already told you that. She has. She has indeed. Mm -hmm. Did you get to work horses uh, in Waterton when you were out on the trails? No. The family here had pack trains in the mountains. Pretty famous. Original, the grandfather and then their father, Andy Russell, ran pack trains and the boys worked on the pack trains, but it was work. And there were two or three of the oldest horses still here when I came, and once in a while we'd catch them and ride a little bit, but not a big deal. I have other friends who have horses now, but not only I, but younger friends no longer ride, because if we fall off, we might break. Not worth the risk. <laughs> a younger friend fell off last week, and it kind of knocked her for a loop for a couple of days. And she's a horse person all the time. Stuff happens. They're big, those horses. They are big. Now, Measure of the Year published originally in 1950, and mm. the most recent edition published 61 years later in 2011, and we can add another 10 years to that. Why are we still talking about this book? Well, I am. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to me that most books that people put out get one printing or maybe two. Mm, yeah. And then get forgotten. Well, because various publishers along the way, Scott McIntyre being one, fell in love with it. It's not terribly original, but people said, oh, he writes like an angel. And just the writing is gorgeous. Is it still relevant? I mean, some books are dated very quickly, but this one still seems to stand the test of time. And in some ways, maybe it's a reflection on a simpler age, too, that people are drawn back to. Yeah, yeah, probably. But, you know, children are children, and uh, a little farm is a little farm, and those kinds of things are still going on in the world. And I think people find it, I don't know, some of it's probably nostalgia, even. People are looking at what used to be, but they remember their own childhoods that are similar. I don't know. Both your parents contributed so much, personally and from an organizational point of view, to this community. Your father as, as, as so many different things, including a magistrate. Your mother as the librarian, shaping countless reading lives at the high school. What accomplishments of theirs, if, if, you, could, if you could pick one or two for each, do you find that you're most proud of? Well, with my father, it's the writing. It's really easy. And my mother, the effect she had on so many people in so many ways through school and church and just generally being herself. Um, she belonged to the University Women's Club, and they had their meetings at the house sometime, and she had her own degree, and they all had, had been at least been to university some. And they were much younger, but she loved having them come to the house once a month or whatever when they had their meetings. It was great kept her stimulated, and she stimulated them. So was she the library at the high school while you were there? She was there while Celie was there. Ah, so that was later. Much later, yeah. Well, by that time the war was over, but, you know, she was home running the little farm and keeping things going and running interference so my father could do his writing and keeping up with three children and or four children as we came along. It has been such a pleasure to talk to you and an honor, I have to say. Is there something more about Measure of the Year or growing up at Above Tide that we haven't touched on that you'd like to add? 
Oh, there's probably more. It's just the whole thing about the the conglomeration, I guess, I'm trying to find the right word, of people who came there and sitting in the study, listening to people talk. If you got bored, you could leave. It just attracted endless numbers of people, but it also was such a haven for us growing up. As I say, when I went to UBC, when I got homesick, there was measure of the year to keep me company. Then it would be time to go home for the weekend. If I was lucky, my father would pick me up in Nanaimo. What an amazing gift that book was in that sense alone then. Yeah. And continues to be, I guess, is what I'm hearing from you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I pick it up and I get, well, for purposes of this, I pick it up and then I start reading this and that and the other thing. Pretty soon I read the whole darn thing again. Not quite, but almost. (laughs) I'd like to thank you so much for taking all this time to share your thoughts with us on Above Tide and, and Measure of the Year. It has been a pleasure. And I thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure talking to you, too. Thank you for joining us at Taking Measure, a podcast series exploring Roderick Haig Brown's 1950 classic work, Measure of the Year, Reflections on Home, Family, and a Life Fully Lived. You can link to the Haig Brown House website in the show notes, and there you'll find all kinds of goodies, including historical photographs and information about how to experience the house and all it offers, in person or virtually. From the study at Above Tide, the Hague Brown House Heritage Site on the bank of the Campbell River, I'm Dan McLennan.